Hey, it's Thomas Frank. I've just got a quick note for you before we get into the show. If you've been enjoying the Inforium or my videos over on YouTube, then you, my friend, should get Nebula. On Nebula, you get ad-free versions of both this podcast and my videos, along with exclusive stuff like extended versions of those videos. And it's not just our stuff that you're going to get. Dozens of other creators are on Nebula, including Ali Abdal, Wendover Productions, Braincraft, Tier Zoo, and lots more. Nebula gives us a chance to experiment, and since everything's ad-free, it's also the best way for you to get our content. Head over to theinforium.com slash nebula to sign up now. Hey, what's up, everybody, and welcome to the College Info Geek Podcast. My name is Thomas Frank, and this is a show that helps you become a more effective student. And in today's episode, we are talking more about reading, specifically speed reading, but also the process of reading itself, all the biology behind it, uh, how your brain processes text, the limitations of that. And if you saw uh, maybe a couple months ago on the YouTube channel, I did a series of videos that kind of tackled speed reading as a whole big topic. And um, we talked about the entire reading process, kind of how your brain processes text, uh, how your eyes move across the page. And that that series of videos, specifically the third one, which talked about ways you can actually improve your reading speeds, was my first foray into actually emailing researchers to get help and to make sure I was reading their work correctly. For a lot of my videos, I'll try to de- uh, dive into academic papers and journals and uh, the writings of people who are smarter than me in general, but um, I usually hadn't really hadn't tried to email and reach out to them personally before, but for this one I did, and I reached out to a researcher named Liz Schotter, who is a uh, postdoctoral scholar in psychology at the University of California, San Diego. And she is actually the author of a recent paper, which is called So Much to Read, So Little Time. And this collects and presents much of the research that's been done on speed reading, but it also does a great job of explaining the reading process itself, which I think is essential to truly understanding why certain speed reading techniques do or don't work. And this paper and some of her other research was really helpful to me in researching for those videos, but also just kind of improving my own understanding of the entire process of reading. So in this episode, we are going to dive into it in more in-depth detail than I ever have gone before. So if you liked those videos and you wanted to, you know, get more into it and learn more, this is the episode for you. We're going to talk about eye biology, why you can't really take a snapshot of an entire page, uh, like a photographic reading technique. We're going to talk about the process of reading and why it's very closely connected with language and speech, and we'll have a more in-depth discussion on the relationship between your reading speed and your level of comprehension, and also some ways that you can increase the former while keeping the latter very high as well. So that's what's coming up in this episode. First, though, I want to tell you about something I'm really excited about. When I was in Portland, Oregon last week, hanging out with my friend Chase, I finally got around to building and launching something that I've been wanting to make for a long time, and that is an official community for College Info Geek. We haven't really had a place where people could like have discussions about any ba- any topic that really pertains to students. You know, we've had like the YouTube channel comments and blog comments, but that's not really a good centralized place for discussion and for relationships to be built and all kinds of really cool stuff to happen. So it's now a thing. I decided to set it up as a subreddit on reddit.com because I think Reddit's a great place for having discussions and the upvote system really kind of promotes the best stuff to the top. So if you want to check it out, and I would love for you to do so, it's free, obviously. It's on Reddit, so obviously it'll be free. Uh, collegeinfogeek.com slash community is the URL you can go to. And I just actually submitted that URL change to my server so they can make it redirect to Reddit. So hopefully it works by the time this episode goes out. I'm going to try to launch it after it works. But in case it doesn't, uh, be, I'm re- like recording this the night before this will go out. You can always go to reddit.com slash r slash geek, But like... 
anytime beyond a few hours after this goes live, you will be able to go to collegeofvogeek.com slash community and take part in discussions. We will have an official topic request thread at the top every month. So if you've got something you want me to cover in a video or if you've got like a person you want me to interview on the podcast or just like an in-depth topic you think would be good for this medium, then that's where you can request those things. We'll have like threads where you can list off your best tips or your favorite apps or your favorite study music and kind of help contribute to future videos. And also, if you have a question, that is going to be the best place going forward to ask it because I'm going to be in there as much as I can um, while also balancing the rest of my work to answer questions. And my answers will be able to be viewed by other people as well. So it's kind of more efficient, but also... There's just a lot of really smart students, including, I'm guessing you, who can answer other people's questions. So it's kind of just a better place overall than trying to email me and getting my my email inbox is just crazy. So a lot of email gets lost these days. So check it out. I would love to see you over in the community. And beyond that, the only thing left to cover is the show notes, which you can find over at CIGpodcast.com. You'll find them over the episode 93 link on the page. If you click that, you'll find a link to uh, Liz's paper that you can read through if you really want to get nerdy. Uh, also other links we talked about and ways that you can rate and review the podcast on iTunes if you would like to support it. So that's it. Let's get into this interview. All right. Well, hey, Liz, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, really glad to have you here. So your research was really, really helpful in making those videos I did on speed reading uh, last year. And it was like the only series I've ever done so far on my channel. So I think it was like pretty in depth. But your research and the research that you've kind of brought together in this new paper you're you're about to submit is like way more in depth. So I kind of wanted to just pick your brain on how reading works, how our eyes like process information and how the brain process information. And I just have like a bunch of questions. And uh, before we get into it, I was just kind of curious, like, you graduated in psychology, so what led you into researching reading? Um, I So when I graduated college, I applied to graduate school, and I knew that I was interested in the psychology of language in general, um, but I didn't have a more specific idea other than that. And um, it actually turned out that the um, mentor that I decided to go and work with um, Keith Rayner, who is the first author on um, this paper that um, actually I think is coming out this week or something. Um, he is like the world or was the world's most for, you know foremost expert in reading. And so when I joined his lab, the majority of the work that I did there was on reading. Um, and so I just kind of as I learned more, I got more excited and more interested in it. And then I just kept doing more work on it. Oh, that's cool. So you just kind of got hooked up with Keith without really being interested in that field at first? Yeah, I mean, he when I was applying to graduate school, his name kept coming up because he's he's just an amazing researcher, very supportive of his students and um, stuff like that. So um, he as a person kind of came up and then it was just once I got there and started working with him, I actually, my first couple of experiments weren't on reading, but then I slowly started finding my way gravitating toward reading and then just doing more and more work in reading. Okay, cool. So I was reading through the paper that you wrote and before you dig into the actual techniques that speed readers try to use and kind of like show the data behind them, you like take a lot of pains to define what reading is and how it works. 
And I think like that would be really cool for people to listen, like to know about. So what exactly like is reading and what different types of reading are there? Yeah. So I think the better question is what different types of reading Mm -hmm. behaviors are there? Because reading in the, the general sense that people kind of throw it around is just kind of like looking at text to get something out of it. Um, but you can, you can, uh, read to learn something new, in which case you're going to have to spend some more time doing it, get a little bit more um, involved in uh, the ideas of it, trying to, you know, really process deeply what the text is conveying so that you can really fully understand it. Let's say you're reading a textbook to learn something for class or Mm -hmm. you're reading a manual to, you know, get instructions for how to put something together. Or if you really want to know what happens in a novel or a story, you are going to engage really um, deeply with it. But sometimes we're not trying to be that cautious. We want to just get a general idea or a gist of what the text is saying. Um, You know, you might want to read a newspaper article, but just get a general idea of what it conveys. Um, And in that case, you might probably be doing something closer to what we call skimming. So you go through the text a lot more quickly. You don't, um, I don't want to say you don't pay as much attention, but you don't absorb it as as much. You just kind of like pick out the key points and maybe like the key ideas and the key terms, but not necessarily every single exact thing that's going on. Okay. Um, and then there are other behaviors. You can proofread something if you want to make sure that it, it's properly written. There are tons of other ways that you can engage with text. Um, and, you know, in general, those are kind of reading-like behaviors, but it really depends on what your goal is um, for, for what we really define the behavior as. Okay. And so you mentioned that reading is like intrinsically tied with language. Mm-hmm. Um, I always saw reading as, I guess, intuitively as like, your eyes are processing squiggles on a page and directly interfacing with your brain to get meaning out of those things. But is it actually kind of a more roundabout process through through speech communication then? Yeah, um, so for the most part, and we can talk about some, some exceptions to this, for the most part, reading kind of piggybacks on top of listening. So you're, you're born, um, if you're not deaf, you're born with the ability to hear um, language. And you very, very quickly, as um, a very young infant, pick up on the sounds of your language, and then you start to learn how they get segmented into words, and then you start to learn the, the structure of language, the grammar of it, you learn new vocabulary, all of this stuff. And you do it just spontaneously without really needing to be taught or you know explicitly told how, how that works. And so, listening and speaking emerges very early um, and almost just, you know, effortlessly. Mm. But then if you remember back to when you had to learn to read, it was painstaking. You went to school every day and they would like teach you what these individual letters mean and then what the sounds of the letters um, represent. And then you have to take all of this time to learn how to read and you have to be explicitly taught how to read. And so um, phonics, you know, teaching 
what the this letter looks like this and it sounds like this is one of the most effective ways to teach children how to read and that is because it allows you to take advantage of your existing knowledge of the language and then figure out how that maps onto these arbitrary squiggles that you see on the page okay so um i don't know if how, how correct this is but i've been told that when i was a kid like phonics wasn't as prevalent in public schools and I was actually homeschooled and my mom taught me phonics. So yeah. when I went to public school, like I was ahead of the curve on reading. So it was like, is the development of phonics as a teaching tool in public schools kind of recent or has it just been so, like battling it out with other methods? So that's actually really interesting. Um, Keith published a paper in Psychological Science in the Public Interest at so the same place that this speed reading review paper is coming out 15 years ago on the science behind teaching kids how to read. Okay. And part of that was a response to this growing movement to move away from phonics and people kept pushing these methods called the whole word method or you know other methods that basically said don't teach phonics just teach kids to like recognize the words and the science behind it didn't hold up and so they they wrote this big um, review paper and then um, after a while it really kind of caught on and now phonics is really you know the the thing that is being taught and it's a lot better now but there was this movement it was kind of you know maybe a few decades not not that long um, but there was a time when a a whole slew of kids in the United States didn't really get the right training in, in how to read. I mean, you can overcome that. Like eventually. Mm -hmm. you can, but, um. Yeah. And I did notice that as time went on, the kids in my class seemed to catch on to reading and catch up to where yeah. I was. But it was like that, that initial, I think it was like third grade when I entered uh, public school, it was like most kids had a lot of trouble reading passages in class. And I was just like, well, you just sound it out. And yeah. I had no idea they had not even been taught that. Yeah. Oh, that's a shame. <laughs> but it's it's good that uh, they're teaching that now. And congrats to Keith for helping champion that cause. Yeah. Yeah. Lucky so, <laughs> so reading is kind of like an attachment or something that builds off of speech. Now, that seems that seems logical when I think about it. And that would seem to kind of automatically refute one of the ideas people have about speed reading, which is that you can like suppress this this reading voice in your head, this like subvocalization that like you have this like silent voice in your head that's reading to you. And um, I was like, I tried to do this when I was early on in college because I figured, oh, speed reading is obviously I can do all these things and read at 10,000 words per minute. So right. I just tried to suppress it. And now it just like kind of makes sense. But you said there were exceptions to reading being a piggyback on speech like what are those exceptions so um one of the most interesting things is what about deaf people people who actually cannot hear hmm. the language um and so there there is a, a large portion of the deaf deaf population that actually don't achieve um you know skilled reading level um, but there is a smaller percentage that do and are actually really efficient skilled readers um, so research on this um, has only really kind of started in the past five years um, from a research scientist in, in the lab Natalie Belanger and she worked with Keith to study how is it that these really efficient deaf readers actually do it um, 
So because this research is so new, we don't have all of the answers. Um, but one of the things is that they don't really um, necessarily use phonological codes or, or use them differently. But it does seem to be that they're more efficient at processing visual information. And it might be that they can bypass the use of phonology because they don't actually know how these things sound because they haven't heard English, but can make a direct connection between the squiggles on the page and the individual words. And it could be the case that they actually do that by accessing the signs in American Sign Language. So they basically have to translate through this other language that they know. Um, but, you know, this is all new research, so I can't give all of the conclusive answers. Okay. But so the theory is that even with them, it's not a direct squiggles to brain connection. There is some sort of bypass that has to be made through some form of language. And for yeah. them, it's signs which could actually be more efficient than vocal language for that translation. Right. And, you know, obviously this all depends on, um, you know, how much time they spend reading in because si American Sign Language is its own independent language. It's mm. not just um, a you know, on the hands representation of English. So it's actually that they're like bilingual. Okay. But the language that they read in is actually, you know, English. And then the language that they speak is actually sign language, American. That's sign. interesting. So they're, they're literally translating to a different language and then almost back again, if that's indeed what is happening. Yeah. So that's one idea of how they okay. actually is that they're, they're using their other language. They're kind of like, you know, speed translating, I guess. Okay. Um, but one, one other possibility is that they just um, have a very visual process in which they've just memorized the connection between concepts and these visual forms. Mm. I think that's a little less plausible because that that seems a, like a very hard thing to do is just make a connection between a squiggle on a page and potentially some abstract idea that you've actually never seen in the real world. So it's probably more likely that they're actually using this other yeah. language that they know to piggyback on. Well, it would make sense because the general population's only been using written language for less than a thousand years, probably. Yeah, when was the Rosetta Stone? Well, I mean, like, obviously, royalty scribes, everything that that's been 4,000, 6,000 oh, years potentially. Like but I mean, like, if, like, looking for like a genetic reason or like, because speech happens almost naturally if you're right. around people who are using speech and you're not isolated like it's kind of like a what do you emergent property in yeah. humans so and i you could you could assume that that's because we've had it for a very long time but we haven't had written language uh you know ubiquitous literacy for very long at all yeah so i think it would it would make more sense that they are using some form of language not just squiggles to brain right theory. <laughs> yeah um so speaking of like just using your eyes directly, you talked about the biology of um, the eyes and like how it relates to this visual acuity. Mm -hmm. And so that was one thing we talked about in the video was like there's this range of of uh, vision where you can actually make out small details. Yeah. But what I didn't know is like, why can you only see small details in that little tiny range? And why is the rest of your eye just blurry colors and movement? Um, so, you know, that's an evolutionary psych question. Um, and those types of questions are really hard to answer because we only really can measure stuff now. We mm -hmm. couldn't, we can't go back in time and measure what, uh, 
the visual system of like Neanderthals with. Um, but it's probably the case that it's that way because attention is very highly correlated with where you're looking and particularly the center of vision. So okay. it may be that this is kind of like a, a spotlight of, you know, here's the sharp information. This is what you should pay most attention to in the very center. And then we'll also give you this other stuff, but we don't want to distract you with that information around okay. the center of vision. So it, you know, we're not going to bother making it that high acuity. And, and by, you know, bother making it that high acuity. I'm talking about evolutionary processes. Right. But, um, you know, no, like nobody went and designed and said like, okay, I'm going to knock out these <laughs> photoreceptors here. But it's probably the case that there's a certain high acuity region because you only really want to be able to focus on one thing. So you might as well just, um, because there are, there are billions more um, photoreceptors in that area, or at least cones in that area than the other ones. And, you know, who knows how uh, difficult it is to make these neurons or cells, but, you know, you might as well not even bother with, with the areas outside of that, especially because one of the advantages of being able to make eye movements is that if you want to pay attention to some other part of the visual field, you just move your eyes and look at it. And now right. we have that high resolution area focused on what you want to pay attention to next. Okay. Well, I guess what I was curious about is like, what, what is the biological, biological structures that causes the center of the eye to be able to pick up detail while the rest of it can't? Oh, okay. So that um, is because of the density of photoreceptors. Okay. So photoreceptors are these cells that are on the back of the, the lining of your eye. The lining is called the retina. Mm -hmm. The photoreceptors basically respond when light hits hits them. And so um, there are two classes of photoreceptors. There are rods and cones. And the cones are what pick up color. So okay. they're broken down into ones that detect red, green, yellow, blue. Um, and those are more densely packed in the center of vision. And, um, well, I'll get to that point next. So then the cone, the, the rods are um, more sensitive to just shades of gray, darkness and lightness. And they're sensitive in the dark. So if you turn off the lights, you know, it's really hard to see. And then the, the details start to fill in. That's okay. because during bright light, your rods are just oversaturated and they don't respond that much because they're just like, everything's really bright. <laughs> then you turn off the lights and they start to respond more. Like everything goes black because all of the cones are now like, we had light and we don't have anything anymore. Mm -hmm. So now in the dark, your rods start responding to things. And once you adapt to the, the dark light, now you can start seeing the details because your, your rods are kicking in. Okay. So um, one of the other really important aspects of visual acuity is there's a kind of chain of connection from these photoreceptors in your retina back to your brain. So first, the photoreceptor connects to a, um, a ganglion cell, and then, um, or sorry, a bipolar cell, and then the bipolar cell connects to a ganglion cell, and then that sends information to your brain. For a cone, one cone sends information to one bipolar cell, sends information to one ganglion cell, okay. and then that goes to the brain. 
But for rods, a group of rods will send information that gets averaged between the information in those rods to one or a group of bipolar cells. And then those cells will average their information and then send that to one ganglion cell. So what okay. that means, if you have a dark patch and a light patch, and you have the dark patch hit one cone and the light patch hit another cone, you're gonna see a boundary between dark and light. Mm -hmm. But for the rods, if you have one rod getting a dark patch and another rod getting a light patch, and they send their information to the same bipolar cell, which sends its information to the same ganglion cell, then you're gonna be averaging that, so you're gonna get a gray blob getting sent Bef um, between the cells before it gets um, up to the brain. Okay. So, so the rods are just kind of averaging everything together and being like, meh, this is, this is basically what it's like. And then yeah. the cones are like, every single one of us needs to tell you exactly what we saw. Basically. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. So for the people who are like, you can just look at a page and use your peripheral vision to read every word, like the biology literally isn't set up to yeah. make that possible at all. Yeah, I mean, there probably are some instances of people whose retinas are not organized the same way as the rest <laughs> of us, and maybe they do have magical, you know, acuity that's much wider than the average population. So I'm not gonna say that this is the case for everybody, but uh -huh. yes, for the most part, you really can't see much of anything or mm. in, in detail right. outside of um, one degree in any direction, one degree of visual angle in any direction around the very center of where you're looking. And what okay. that means is if you take your thumb and you hold it out at, you, at your arm's distance away from your face, okay. the width of your thumbnail is basically how much sharp, air, how much high acuity area there is. That's how tiny it is. So how do they define the degrees of visual acuity? Is there like a specific radius from the the like surface of your eye to a distance and then that, that's where they draw the circle? Yeah, so it's, um, yeah, it's basically trigonometry. Um, so if, yeah, if you imagine that your eye, it, the like um, cornea of your eye is at the center of a circle, mm -hmm. one, one degree uh, so, you know, 360 degrees. Oh, just any degree. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, <laughs> just, you know, like that little sliver of a pie that right. is one degree. Um, so that means that, um, like, an individual, like, the size of your hand, how much of your visual field it takes up depends on how far away it is from your face. Because okay. the closer it is, it'll take up more degrees of visual angle. Gotcha. And and actually, I remember somebody commenting on one of my videos who was like, okay, well, if you only have one degree of visual acuity, just move the textbook back and then you can see more letters. So, okay. So that is partially true <laughs> um, <laughs> that if you move the textbook further away, you can fit more letters within mm. that one degree, but they're also going to be tinier. Right. So it's also... you're. So each letter is going to be smushed more into like, you know, fewer and fewer cells, which, you know, um, 
it, it's just going to be harder, harder to see. I mean, there is a limit. Like you can't, you can't move the book a mile away and be able to like read yeah. the whole thing. You just can't see it at that point. <laughs> Have they done studies about like the optimal distance to uh, to read something at for so, speed? So, so yeah, I, well, not about huh that I know of. Not about the optimal distance for speed. But one cool thing is that how far we move our eyes when we read, which in English on average is about seven characters. Mm -hmm. So from where you're currently looking, you move your eyes ahead about, you know, seven or eight characters. You do that regardless of how close the text is to your um, face or not. So if the text really? is closer, you actually move your eyes further because seven degrees means you have to move further. But if you move the, the text further away from you, your eyes don't move as far, but they still move about seven or eight characters. Okay, so that would lead me to believe that the bottleneck isn't really with the saccade or the fixation, it's with how much your brain wants to process at one time. Exactly, exactly. Okay. So a lot of what determines reading, it, so you're, the way I describe it is that your your brain is the engine and your eyes are the wheels. If you know, if you want to make a car analogy, it's that your your brain knows what it wants and when it wants it and the the timing of all of that and it's what's sending signals to your eyes. So a lot of there are these physiological constraints like you just can't see as well in the periphery as you can in the center, mm -hmm. but then a lot of the other things that determine how and when you move your eyes is about your attention and your attention as it pertains to the language that you're processing. Okay. And one of the things that kind of turned me on to that was um, one of the research papers I was reading, I don't remember which one, it showed some data about um, skipping words. Like, mm -hmm. well, it's not yeah, like skipping fixations that skip words and how people reading at normal speeds can intelligently skip the function words that don't really yeah. carry much information and fixate on the content words more often. Yeah. So it's really, it's really a brain thing. It's almost as if your brain can anticipate where it needs to fixate to get the next piece of information. Yeah, and I mean, as you read more, you pick up more information that helps you make those decisions intelligently. Okay. So, um, we when we read, we skip about um, a third of the words in the text, mm -hmm. but some of those words are overrepresented in these skipping rates. Like the word "the" is skipped mm -hmm. half of the time, and that's because it's a short word. It's a high frequency, so very common word, and it's generally pretty predictable from the sentence context. So, yeah. you know, it'll come after a verb, but before a noun. And so in that sense, why even fixate it? Because you pretty much already know it's there. Right. I, I heard but, about something called the, I think it's called like the zip effect. Oh, where yeah. It's like, uh, give take any book, no matter what, there's always this exponential uh, distribution of yeah. the most frequent words and like the is there and then like only half as much as the word a or something like that. So your yep. brain kind of already knows those things are gonna be there and doesn't need to fixate on them. Right, and we, uh, we can do really cool things like trick your brain into skipping um, a certain location when it wouldn't make sense for you to do so by putting the word the in its place. So one of the former graduate students, he's now a professor in England, um, in, from the lab, did a study where he took um, sentences that had three word verbs in them, like 
she, um, she knew she would ace all of the tests. Okay. So ace is a three-letter verb. And if you replace the verb ace with the word the, it's the same number of letters, so it doesn't change anything about the rest of the sentence, but now it doesn't make sense. Right. She, she would the all of the tests. That makes no sense. But the cool thing is that the readers skipped that what we call infelicitous the half of the time. So it's like oh. almost by default, you get this word that's really common. You're like, oh, I know that word. I don't need to look at it. And you just skip right over it. And of course, obviously, after they got past it, they were like, wait a second. <laughs> and they went back and they reread and they were like, oh, okay. And then if you, once they move past that word, it, it changed back to ace. So yeah. once back and reread it, they're like, okay, this is a sense. <laughs> So it's almost like, well, I guess not almost, it is your brain is constantly using the context to intelligently figure out where to go next and what to skip and how fast to read. Yeah, the context, but also, um, so the context in that, in that study suggests that you shouldn't skip that word because it doesn't make any sense. Okay. But that information didn't kick in right away. It was that there, this preview that they had. So before they even looked at the word, they saw the out of the corner of their eye. And so, you know, your paraphobial or peripheral vision isn't so horrible that you can't get any information. So it's the view that they got of that word from kind of the corner of their eye that mm. said, hey, I know this word. This is a really common word. And that's what caused them to skip over it. Okay. And that makes sense because in your paper, you talk about how people who are reading material they're really familiar with, they can go through it much faster if it's like, you know, a couple degrees outside of their sphere of expertise or something. So take that to the nth degree, the word the, your, pro your eye probably knows exactly what it looks like when it's coming. So it's just like, don't need that, go to the next one. Yeah. So it's just like increasing speed exponentially to, uh, to match how familiar you are with the uh, given word. Yeah. Exactly. And then on the flip side, if you're reading something really complex, that's why you have to go so slow. Right. I mean, you could blow through it, but you're not going to understand any of it because these are going to be words you've either never seen before or you rarely see. Sometimes it's written um, in, these, in these structures or putting together concepts that you've never thought about before. So you can't, you can't just, um, you know, spend little time on it and really get all of that information. If it's something that you really don't know that much about, you really do need to spend, you know, the amount of time paying attention to it to learn it. And that's probably true of listening as well, you know? If it's something, you know, if I'm telling you a story about something that you've already heard before, I can probably tell a pretty short story and you'll you'll get it. Yeah. But if I'm trying to teach you some, you know, new scientific theory or tell you about like some political thing that's going on in a foreign country you've never been to, I probably need to spell out all the details for you and fill in all of the gaps because you don't have the structure, um, the structured knowledge yourself to be able to just fit any new piece of information into there. Right. So you, if you don't have the foundation, you have to build it on the fly. And that's why it takes so much longer to get through that type of material. Exactly. Awesome. Well, this has been like really enlightening. And I know people, if, if they're really curious, they could dig into the paper. Um, yes. But I wanted to ask you about to end on was uh, we've established that that, you know, optimal reading rate for reading for comprehension is two to four, 200 to 400 words per minute. Right. Mm -hmm. So I've had people ask like, OK, I'm 
on the lower end of that, I'm at 200 or I'm even lower than 200. How do I start to increase my reading speed? I don't want to speed read, but I want to be able to read, you know, in the 300 to 400 range rather than like that low end 200. So what are some things people can start doing to practice and improve their ability to read faster? So I, I get this question a lot and I don't think I satisfy people that often with my answer <laughs> because the really, answer is not satisfying. The answer really is to read more. I mean, mm. it's it, it's practice like any complex skill. You know, if you if you want to get better at playing football, how how do you do it? You have to practice playing football. You can't just go and lift weights. Right. And, think that that's going to transfer over to this really complicated skill that has a lot of components. Well, that's the same thing with reading. Mm -hmm. But the nice thing about practicing reading is by doing it, you kind of automatically get the benefits of practicing. You don't need to specifically have to try and do this or try and do that. And that's true basically because of all of these um, effects that, that we've talked about in reading. So you spend less time, you don't need to spend as much time on words that are more common. Okay. So, so if you start to encounter those <laughs> words more and more, they become more common to you. Okay. So the next time that you see that word, it's going to be easier to read. And so that's why, you know, that's why it's so much harder to read a text about something that you don't know about because you've never seen those words before and you haven't really encountered those concepts before. So you, every time you in, encounter them, you need to kind of remember, oh, what is that? Okay, wait, this thing looks like this. That that means this thing. Oh, okay, I got it. But as you do that more and more, you're like, okay, you know, photoreceptor. Got it. All right. I know what that means. Okay. So as you keep reading and as you keep seeing things, you're building stronger neural patterns that can just, so it just like zips right to that piece of information you need. Exactly. Okay. So not only, so in that sense, reading more not only expands your vocabulary, but it also enriches your vocabulary because it mm -hmm. makes those connections between concepts and words and visual forms stronger. But there's also another benefit of reading more. And this is important to not just reread the same thing over and over again, but read a bunch of diverse texts is that you learn more. You actually become a like, more knowledgeable person mm. and so if you have more knowledge about things it's easier for you to acquire new knowledge and fit it into that structure because you can connect it to stuff that you've already learned okay. so if you don't so it's kind of like well you also have to kind of learn more and just become a more um, knowledgeable person then it's easier to pick up new things um, through reading and and then you won't have to spend as much time reading because you'll kind of almost already know what the text is going to say if you have enough knowledge about the topic. Yeah. So what about people who are wondering, like, should I be studying SAT vocabulary lists and doing flashcards of those? Like, is that useful to increase your vocabulary or are you just better off reading and learning those um, words in context? So it depends on your goal, right? So if all you want to do is answer a multiple choice SAT question that says, you know, this word, what's the definition? Well, the most similar to what that test is going to be like is probably a flashcard that has a word and then on the back a definition. But if you want to be able to understand these complex words in the context that they're being used, like, you know, a newspaper article in a kind of um, 
more complicated newspaper outlet or um, a textbook or so a journal article or something like that. You probably want to encounter it in the context that it's likely to appear so that you get the benefit of understanding not only what the specific definition of this word is, but how it relates to other concepts in the case that you might be using it or encountering it in the future. Yeah, cool. So the answer is a little paradoxical, but to read things faster, you need to read more, <laughs> spend more time reading. <laughs> yeah, see, that's why people never like my answer. <laughs> but it makes sense, and the football example is perfect, you know, or the, like, you could you could just bolt this onto running the 100 meter dash. To run a 100 meter dash, you need to spend more time running the 100 meter dash. Like that's, yeah. you can't, there's no like hack to it. There's definitely techniques. Um, and if you want to go through things faster, you can skim, you can pre-read, things like that. But yeah, I guess just reading. But it's really cool to learn all the biology behind it and everything. And this went even more in depth than what I learned in my videos. So Liz, thank you so much for coming on the show. Of course. Thank, again, it was a pleasure to be here. Awesome. All right, guys, thanks so much for listening to this episode. Hopefully you enjoyed it. And once again, I would love to see you in the new College Info Geek community. So check it out over at collegeinfogeek.com slash community. Other than that, uh, if you want to find my favorite resources for making your college experience a better one, collegeinfogeek.com slash resources is the place that you want to be. And that's all I've got. So until next week's episode, stay cute.